What's up everybody, Gen X Dividend Investor here. In this video, I'm going to reveal the top five consumer discretionary stocks for 2020 that investors on my Dividend Discord server voted that they're buying or want to buy. For context, I run a free Dividend Discord chat server, which I'll include the link to in the description of this video, or if you search for the world's largest Dividend Discord server on Google, mine comes up. Then I'll also tell you my personal opinion as to how I'd rank the top five consumer discretionary stocks. That way you can hear both my Discord's opinion and mine, as some of you asked for me to share that. And then I'm going to tell you the tragic story of a barber who invested for decades and whose portfolio rose to almost a million dollars before it crashed down and he lost it all. I want you to listen to that story very carefully so that you truly understand the realities of what can happen as you invest in the markets. And even more importantly, I'll tell you seven critical investing lessons you need to learn, which literally might save your financial life. So I highly recommend that you watch this entire video as there's lots of valuable info in it beyond the consumer discretionary stocks. And as is my normal disclaimer, just consider this entertainment and not financial advice. I also want to thank you for taking a moment out of your day to watch this video. It means the world to me if you could subscribe and then caress that thumbs up button. Okay, consumer discretionary stock time. For reference, the sectors are energy, materials, industrials, consumer discretionary, consumer staples, healthcare, financials, information technology, communication services, utilities, and real estate. Okay, so what do I mean when I say consumer discretionary sector? Well, take a look at this Global Industry Classification Standards Taxonomy. We see that the consumer discretionary sector is made up of four industries, which are automobiles and components, consumer durables and apparel, consumer services, and retailing. So consumer discretionary are non-essential items that people want. This might be stuff that is helpful or useful, but not needed to live, per se. This means things like high-end clothing or entertainment activities or things like that. When the economy is strong, consumers earn more and thus spend more on discretionary products. Sometimes they call it consumer cyclical because when the economy is weak or it's contracting, then consumers earn less and then tend to spend less on things that are discretionary, and instead spend more on consumer staples, which are also called consumer defensive. So let's look how the consumer discretionary sector as a whole has been doing in the last five years compared to other sectors into the S&P 500. We'll use an ETF called XLY in this comparison. So we see that the S&P 500 has returned about 77%, whereas the consumer discretionary sector has returned an incredible 99.4%. That's awesome to be beating the market like that. We also see that the worst sector has been energy at minus 46%, and the best has been tech at 200%. The majority of my portfolio has been in tech since I started investing. So I'm overweight in tech, but that's also my line of business and my area of competency. So I'm following Lynch's advice and I'm investing in what I know. Now, XLY is just one of the consumer discretionary ETFs. Others include Vanguard's VCR, Fidelity's FDIS, and Invesco's RCD. I'll include this link in my description for you if you want to dig deep into things like expense ratio and returns and ETF CAGRs and such. We see that XLY has returned 9.68% annualized over the last 21 years, which is better than SPY, which has returned 6.79% over the same time frame. Okay, now that you have that context, let's see what the results are. I actually agree with the top five in this list, though I'd change the order a bit. So the fifth most popular consumer discretionary stock in the poll with 21% of voters is the only non-dividend stock in the list, and it's one I'm long in in my growth portfolio, and that's run by Jeff Bezos, aka the richest man in the world, and that company is obviously Amazon. Did you know that Jeff Bezos is wealthier than the entire British monarchy and his net worth is north of $121 billion now, which means he makes about $2,500 a second? But do you know what his annual salary is? It's only $81,840. His wealth is from the stocks. That means that maybe you can tell people that you have a bigger salary than Jeff Bezos. And if that don't get you the honeys, nothing will. 
And if you need another data point to feel good about yourself, just be happy that you're closer to being a millionaire than he is. Now, if I were rating my top five, I'd have Amazon number two in the poll. Let's take a look at the total returns of Amazon since they went public about 23 years ago. So this is silly amazing. Amazon has had a ridiculous 38% annualized return over 23 years, which means if you had invested $10,000 into it in 1997, you would now have $19 million. Let's look at their one-year returns. So their stock is around $3,300 a share, below their 52-week high of $3,550, and way, way above their 52-week low of $1,620. Amazon has been on fire, and their insane PE of $128 affirms how insane things have been. Did you know that Amazon was founded by Bezos because he was having regrets that he hadn't jumped into the internet boom that was occurring? So he decided he had to do something and he started a company that changed the world forever. I remember the first time I heard about Amazon was on the Howard Stern Show and I remember thinking, man, are they late to the game. For a while, their stock was lackluster. Some critics actually called them Amazon.bomb. How could they compete with a company like Borders or Barnes & Noble, both of which had massive resources to launch competing e-commerce book sites? and couple that with lack of profits for years and very few thought Amazon would become what it is today. So the stock kind of meandered along until 2010, but then it took off and just kept running. I personally sat on the sidelines watching it grow and for years I made my classic mistake, which is waiting for a big pullback on something which unfortunately keeps on running. One thing investors like about Amazon is their revenue growth. Amazon revenue has been looking solid for years. The concerns that critics have is about their profits though, so let's check out net income trends. So as you can see, things did nothing for years until the last few. How about their shares outstanding? Now for a growth company, their shares outstanding trends look normal. So now that we've seen their earnings and their shares outstanding, let's check out EPS. So as you could guess, it didn't look too compelling until the last few years, but that isn't too strange for a growth company which favors grabbing market share over earnings. How about their assets growth versus their liabilities? Here we see that Amazon has a nice trend that I like to see, where their assets are outpacing their liabilities. Let's check out how their price to free cash flow ratio has trended. So that spike throws off the scale of these trends. Let's see what picture debt paints. So here it's looking low until 2017. So what happened then? Well that's when Amazon paid over $13 billion to buy Whole Foods. That was a move that fired shots directly at Walmart, which is the largest grocery retailer in the United States and which is battling Amazon in the internet shopping space. Whole Foods accomplishes a variety of goals of Bezos's, including to get more upper middle class locations to act as distribution hubs for a range of Amazon products, as well as to get more data on buying habits. Whole Foods brick and mortar stores were key because only a small fraction of Americans buy fresh food online. Bezos wants to create an easy to use online experience for doing all your shopping needs, and he is succeeding. Okay, let's move on to the number four most popular consumer discretionary stock with 25% of the vote, and that's a dividend stock I own in Starbucks. Here's some info from DividendInvestor.com because Seeking Alpha is still borked right now. We see that Starbucks has a low trailing 12-month dividend yield of 1.9% and a projected 10-year dividend yield on cost of 5.15%, which assumes a 10% CAGR. Awesome. Its payout ratio has skyrocketed due to the pandemic to 148%, so that would be an obvious concern. But as things improve, then that should come back to earth. You can see that their 5-year payout ratio average is much nicer at 67%. Its 5-year dividend CAGR is an insane 20.8%, though I'd imagine this year it won't be anything to write home about. And it has 9 consecutive years of dividend increases, so a bit below the 10 I normally like to see. Though if the pandemic persists, I wouldn't be surprised if it caused them to rethink their dividend. Let's take a look at the total returns of Starbucks. So Starbucks has blown SPY out of the water. They have an incredible 19.2% annualized return for the last 25 years, so a $10,000 investment would have been worth 825 grand now. 
But those were years where they were adding new stores aggressively, and of course we had no pandemic. So growth will probably come from acquisitions along with moving harder into the food space, and then drone delivery. How nice would that be to click a button on your smartphone and 15 minutes later you walk outside and thank DroneBot for your triple tall iced vanilla brave latte? Let's look at their one year returns. Their stock is about at $86 a share, a bit below their 52 week high of 94 and way above their 52 week low of 50. It's amazing how well Starbucks has held up. Their PE is very lofty at 77. We see that Starbucks stock price growth has been meteoric, a bit like Amazon's. Let's check out their dividend history. So this is interesting, we see that in 2015 to 2016 it looked like they did a dividend cut, which doesn't align to what dividend investors said about their consecutive years of dividend growth. My guess is they did a split. Let's check out splithistory.com and see what it says. So as we anticipated, Starbucks did a two-for-one split in 2015, which explains why we saw what looked like a dividend cut in their history. Let's check out their dividend yield history. So here we see that their yield has gotten less compelling over time, which basically implies that their stock price has been increasing faster than their dividend, which means that if you look at this metric in isolation, it has been trending as less compelling over time. How has their revenue growth been? So we see a nice revenue growth trend for Starbucks that we like to see. Let's see how their profit trends compare. Starbucks is a nice increasing net income over time. How about their shares outstanding? I like how Starbucks has been buying back their shares. I love to think about how my shares are becoming more valuable as they remove shares outstanding like that. Let's see how their EPS has been trending given those earnings and shares we just reviewed. So we see a nicely growing EPS trend for Starbucks. Let's check out their asset to liability trends. So this is a yellow flag I'm seeing in Starbucks metrics. I don't like to see liabilities growing faster than assets. That can only continue for so long. This is going to be something we should watch as time goes on and hopefully see it corrected. Let's check out how their price to free cash flow ratio has trended. Here we see that Starbucks has remained fairly steady, indicating that their stock price to their free cash flow trends have remained fairly neutral. Let's look at their debt trends. So Starbucks has been taking on a decent amount of debt, something I'm not fond of. Hopefully that trend doesn't continue. Okay, let's move on to the number three most popular consumer discretionary stock with 29% of the vote, and that's a dividend stock I don't own but which is a favorite of many, and that's Lowe's. Let's check out some of their key metrics. We see that Lowe's has a low trailing 12-month dividend yield of 1.5% and a projected 10-year dividend yield on cost of 5.87%, which assumes an aggressive 15% CAGR. Its payout ratio is a very nice 29%, and they have an amazing 5-year dividend CAGR of 17.88%, and then they show that they are one of the elite dividend kings at 58 consecutive years of dividend growth. Let's take a look at the total returns of Lowe's. Lowe's has also blown the S&P 500 out of the water with its 16.5% annualized return over the last 25 years. Let's look at their one year return. So their stock is at $160 a share below their 52 week high of 171 and way above their 52 week low of 60. You would think we're in a bit of a bull market, wouldn't you? Their PE is not too bad at 21. Let's see how their stock price trends compare to other consumer discretionary stocks. We see that Lowe's stock price growth has been incredible since 2011. Can you imagine where things would be right now without the pandemic? Let's check out their dividend payout history. So we see a beautiful trend of increasing dividend payouts exactly like we want to see. Let's check out their dividend yield history. Alright, let's move on to check out their revenue growth. So I like the revenue growth trend for Lowe's. It isn't quite as good as Amazon or Starbucks, but it is still nice. Let's see how their earnings trends look. So we see that Lowe's net income has slowly been trending up, but slower than the other two. How about their shares outstanding? And here Lowe's shines above all their peers with the most aggressive buyback trend. 
Awesome job, Lowe's management. Let's see how their EPS has been trending given those earnings and shares we just reviewed. So we see a solid EPS trend for Lowe's as expected. Let's check out their asset to liability trends. So I don't like to see liabilities growing faster than assets like that. Definitely something to watch. Let's check out their price to free cash flow ratio trends. Here we see that Lowe's price to free cash flow has been becoming less compelling, but it is still the most compelling one relative to others, which are obviously in different industries. Let's look at their debt trends. So like the others, Lowe's is also taking on more debt. Okay, let's move on to the number two most popular consumer discretionary stock with an outstanding 42% of the vote, and that's a dividend stock I own and is the number one competitor to Lowe's, and that's none other than Home Depot. Let's check out some of their key metrics. We see that Home Depot has a low trailing 12-month dividend yield of 2.17% and a projected 10-year dividend yield on cost of an insane 13%, which assumes a super aggressive 20% CAGR. Its payout ratio is a nice 54% and they have an amazing 5-year dividend CAGR of 21%, but they only have 10 years of consecutive dividend growth. Let's take a look at the total returns of Home Depot. Here we see that Home Depot has significantly been outperforming the S&P 500 with a 16% annualized return. Nice. Let's look at their one-year return. Their stock is about at $273 a share, below the 52-week high of $293 and way above their 52-week low of $140. I guess people are really fixing up their houses. Their PE is high at 25. Let's see how their stock price trends compare to other consumer discretionary stocks. We see that Home Depot's stock price growth has been absolutely on fire. Imagine the people who got freaked out by 2008 and got out of the markets. Now let's check out their dividend payout history. Home Depot has a wonderful dividend payout history. Let's check out their dividend yield history. So Home Depot's dividend yield is becoming more of a value prop as time goes on. So even though it might feel pricey, by this indication it might be worth considering, pandemic aside. Alright, let's move on to check their revenue growth. So Home Depot has a decent revenue trend, but it's lagging slightly relative to the others. Let's see how their net income trend looks. Home Depot is one of the best profit trends amongst everybody. Gotta love that. How about their shares outstanding? So Home Depot, like Lowe's, has a nice trend of decreasing outstanding shares. Let's see how their EPS has been trending given those earnings and shares we just reviewed. Here we find that Home Depot is one of the better EPS trends. Their profits combined with their share buybacks are really helping their EPS. Let's check out their asset trends to liability trends and see how they fared compared to Lowe's. So much like Lowe's, we see that Home Depot also has a case of liabilities growing faster than assets. What about their price to free cash flow ratio? So Home Depot looks fairly similar to Lowe's lately, still decently compelling, but it's getting spendy faster. Let's take a look at their debt trends. Much like everyone else, Home Depot is taking on debt. I guess that's all the rage, unfortunately. Okay, let's move on to the number one most popular consumer discretionary stock with an outstanding 46% of the vote, and that's a dividend stock I own and love, and in fact, I just got a vanilla cone from them today, and that's McDonald's. Let's check out some of their key metrics. We see that McDonald's has a low 12-month dividend yield of 2.36%, and a projected 10-year dividend yield on cost of 5.77%, which assumes a 9% CAGR. Its payout ratio is a bit high at 79%, and they have a good 5-year dividend CAGR of 8.08%, with an awesome 43 consecutive years of dividend growth. I really need to buy more McDonald's. It's one of my favorite stocks, and in my personal ranking of consumer discretionary stocks, I put McDonald's at the number one spot, with Amazon close by. Let's take a look at the total returns of McDonald's. Here we see that McDonald's has been outperforming the S&P 500 with its 12.4% annualized return. I'm loving it. Let's look at their one-year return. So their stock is about $217 a share, below their 52-week high of 219 and way above their 52-week low of 124. Delicious. Their PE is also supersized at 34. 
Let's see how their stock price trends compare to other consumer discretionary stocks. We see that McDonald's stock price growth is another winner. Let's check out their dividend payout history. So McDonald's has a solid dividend payout history. Let's check out their dividend yield history. So McDonald's dividend yield is looking as one of the least compelling over time. That's too bad. But it is what happens when their price is mooning relative to the dividend. Let's move on to check their revenue growth. So McDonald's revenue is weak, but if you watch my video on McDonald's, you would see that this is part of management strategy. They're aiming for more profitable growth, so they're sacrificing some revenue purposefully. Let's check out their net income. So we see a positive trend for McDonald's. How about their shares outstanding? So McDonald's has been aggressively buying back shares, returning value to shareholders. No doubt this will be reflected in their EPS trends. McDonald's has a solid EPS trend as we anticipated. So let's check out their asset to liability trends. McDonald's management is evolving their strategies, so we'll have to see how it plays out over the next few years. Let's check out how their price to free cash flow ratio has trended. McDonald's ratio looks reasonable, still under 10. Let's take a look at their debt trends. And there you have it, all of them have increasing debt. I'd be a terrible executive of a Fortune 500 company. I'd be pushing to drive down debt, even at the expense of growth. I feel like we need to do that for our national debt as well, even though it would be unpopular in the short term. Okay, now I'm going to tell you the tragic story of a barber that the Wall Street Journal followed for decades, writing about his investing journey. My friend Dakin on my Discord server told me about his story. The barber's name was Bill Flynn, who got into the stock market because of his great-grandfather who invested. Bill the barber was investing partially on margin, which is borrowed money, and by 1987 he had built a portfolio worth $50,000. But then Black Monday hit, which was the largest single percentage drop in the Dow's history when it fell over 20% in one day. Imagine that. In one trading session, your portfolio falls over 20%. Bill got wiped out, but he chalked it up to not understanding how margin worked and he started investing even more, this time using the savings from his barbershop business. His portfolio started growing again. From 1991 to 2000, he invested over $100,000 of his own money into tech stocks like Yahoo and American Online and in biotech stocks and in penny stocks, and his portfolio grew to over $800,000. His favorite stock was EMC Storage, which he first bought in 1995 for around $7, and on a split-adjusted basis blew up to $130 after two splits, and it was 50% of his portfolio. Bill was the local barber, so he talked to a lot of people in his community when they came in for a cut. In his barbershop, he kept his TV tuned on to business stock channels, and that's all he and his customers talked about. He influenced more and more people to invest in speculative tech stocks before the dot-com bubble burst. I totally get that. Everything you watched on TV back then was saying buy, buy, buy. Sure, there were people who recognized the bubble was getting too big, but at the same time, it was the dawn of the internet, so people thought the potential growth was worth the risk. In 2002, after the dot-com bubble burst, no one in his barbershop was interested in talking about stocks anymore. Countless people in his community had lost almost everything. At that point, not a single of the 20 stocks in Bill's portfolio was valued at more than he paid for it. Five of the eight IPOs he had invested in went bankrupt. His portfolio had dwindled from $800,000 down to $100,000, which was $50,000 less than the $150,000 of his own money he had put in since 1991. The losses were too much for Bill and he decided to quit investing. As you would expect, the market went up big after that crash and Bill missed all of it. He watched it run for five years. Then he finally decided he would start investing again in 2007. He put a bunch of money into Kodak because his stockbroker told him it seemed like a good deal. Unfortunately, the next year was the big recession of 2008, and then Kodak filed for bankruptcy a few years later. So in 2013, after he lost all his Kodak money, he finally decided that the stock market wasn't for him. He quit investing with almost nothing left to his name after being in and out of the markets for over two decades. So what can we learn from poor Bill? Number one, stocks don't always go up. Sometimes they go down, and they go down fast. And sometimes they can go to zero. 
the people who quit because the gut punches are too hard tend not to do well in the long run. Number two, I won't put half my portfolio in any single stock, even in one I totally believe in. I normally try to limit my positions to about 10% of my portfolio, but if I really loved it, I'd let it go to 15%, or maybe even 20%, but that would be pushing it. Number three, always research and stay abreast of your companies. Don't buy and hold blindly, even if they're great companies. Companies often need to evolve to stay relevant as the market changes. At one point in time, Kodak was a great company, but they didn't evolve into the digital age. So you really can't just sit back and say, I can do nothing, just hold my companies forever. Sometimes that works, but sometimes it doesn't. Number four, invest in quality. Don't just go after a hot tech stock with no history of growth. Don't chase that biotech that is all show and no go. Forget the penny stock. Look for great financial fundamentals of growth over long periods of time. Make sure you understand the business and their competitors, etc. Number five, don't buy on margin. Number six, don't invest based on a tip you hear from someone else, whether that's me, a stockbroker, or anyone. You work so freaking hard for your money. Please also work a bit to make sure your investment is solid and remains solid. Number seven, don't try to time the market. No one in the world can predict what the markets will do. Don't be foolish or cocky enough to think you can. Investors are made in down markets, and by that I mean it's the people that keep investing in quality through the bad times that are the ones that succeed in the long run. Okay, thank you so much for watching all the way to the end. Please consider subscribing, clicking the bell notification, and liking this video as it really helps. Thank you for all those that have used my Amazon affiliate link. As an Amazon associate, I earn from qualifying purchases, which means I get a small commission after you click on my link, which is in the description of this video, and then you shop for whatever you need. Doing that is a great way you can support my content, as is signing up to be a Patreon member. And don't forget to check out my Dividend Discord server. Trust me, after a few months, don't be surprised if you truly count some of us as your friends. Finally, I'll leave you with this quote from the amazing Walt Disney himself who said, The way to get started is to quit talking and begin doing. Thanks, and I'll talk to you again real soon. I am not a financial advisor, and these videos are for entertainment, inspiration, and educational purposes only. Investing of any kind involves risk. I am only sharing my opinion with no guarantee of gains or losses on investments.